Welcome back to the Monroe Live podcast. Now, I'm Carl. I'm here with Scott. And today we're actually going to talk about each other. Um, we're going to talk about some of our experiences in the automotive industry, some of our background, and where we see ourselves and where we see things going. Um, so there is nothing really planned. There is nothing new. We have nothing to reveal other than our own stories and our own history. Um, Absolutely. No, it's... Uh, it <laughs> Way to I, sell it, Carl. Way to sell it. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, sometimes, Carl, I always enjoy a candid conversation with you, sir. And obviously, for those who may not know, Carl and I go pretty far back. Uh, I had the distinct pleasure of going to school with Mr. Crittenden uh, and being a fraternity brother. Obviously, we're coworkers now. We've uh, shared some laughs and some probably some tears at some point <laughs> along the way. But uh, no, I appreciate the opportunity, Carl. Thanks for Thanks for having me on today. <laughs> it's actually been 13 years. Yeah. Which seems a, crazy. That, that does seem a little bit crazy. I'm glad Carl's prepared today. He, 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 you, you back calculated that. That's awesome. 13 years. That's a long time, man. I, uh, I'm feeling old. But no, it's beautiful. Carl, is this, so this is my first time on the podcast. I know Eric said you're a veteran. And I was saying, like, I've never been on a podcast. I think someone was asking, have you ever been on a radio show? I, in terms of calling in something similar to this, I did call into a radio show once several times because I was trying to win tickets. I was in um, high school, and my wife was really excited about this band. And I hope you won't make me admit who the band was. It was not for me, but <laughs> she wanted to win tickets, and I was hoping to, to catch her favor or whatever. And uh, I was I was calling this channel to try and win tickets. I never won them, but I did feverishly call in. About twenty years ago, I called into NPR's Car Talk. Um, yep, I. They called me back to be on the show. They had set up the time for our conversation because they set all that up in advance. And I had just gotten a new job, and it was two hours into my first shift in a new job. So I had to call him back and turn it down. I was so <laughs> disappointed because I really wanted to be on Car Talk. So you were scheduled to be on it and it never happened. Yep. So, okay, that is an interesting segue from the standpoint that 20 years ago. So you have been in the car arena then probably for presumably at least that long. And I know it's interesting. I think sometimes I meet folks and whether it's like they've seen videos or I'm just talking about stuff or what I do for work, I think a lot of people assume that I've just been like a quote car person my whole life. But for me, that definitely wasn't the case. I was like, I, I don't know, at times, sometimes I still feel like I have a lot to learn. But uh, I started off like young, not really being totally into cars and kind of having to build that over time. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But how about like for you, um, I guess, were you like out of the womb? Were you always interested in cars or like growing up? What kind of got you into automotive or engineering or any of that? No. As okay. a matter of fact, I was dead set against it. <laughs> okay. um, I am a fourth generation automotive worker. My great grandmother worked for EC. Okay. I mean, back pre-World War II. Um, I had seen all of those people, my great grandparents, my grandparents' generation, a few from my parents' generation, and I did not want to be part of it at all. Now, amongst all of them, only one of them was a salary engineer. All the rest were hourly assembly line workers, union men, members. I saw all of that, and I hated all of that. <laughs> um, so I did not want any part of it. Sure. So for me, I mean, after done with high school, kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do, working a bunch of different jobs, mm -hmm. two situations got me into engineering. Uh, so the first one, I was working at Home Depot and there was this kid, he got hired to work in the electrical department. And one day I went back into the break room and he was sitting at a table doing homework. Okay. He was actually a Kettering student. Okay. But he worked at Home Depot. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he encouraged me, he, seeing him, encouraged me to go back to school. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. Okay. Well, I was a kid's workshop captain for Home Depot. Okay. And there was this little boy who unfortunately was missing an arm. Okay. I believe his name was Caleb. And I would help him work on his projects. And it's kind of funny, like, I'll hold the nail, you swing the hammer. 
What's that your, is brave, man. Well, once you realize that little <laughs> kids really don't swing that hard, sure. yeah, they can smack my fingers. That's fine. I had a similar incident one time holding manually holding a pinata at a kid's birthday party, and I think I nearly lost an arm. So that's brave <laughs> of you. I'm glad you made it through the hammer episode. So seeing him, he came in one day, and he had gotten his first artificial arm. Okay. And he wanted to show me how it would work, and he was picking up some things. And he was so excited about this artificial arm. And... That's when I kind of decided that I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in biofield, and I thought I wanted to work in prosthetics. Mm, okay. But then I looked up the market for prosthetics, and basically the base patent for an artificial arm has been the same patent since like 1919. Hmm. And all new development, the Secretary of Defense has his name on it because most new development is researched by the military. Interesting. Um. All right, so I looked at that. Across the up the U.S., there was only like 40,000 upper arm amputees at the time. Okay. So that's a 40,000 possible customer pool if I'm making an artificial arm. Mm-hmm. Most insurance companies would only pay for one limb in a lifetime. So the market was getting narrower and narrower, and I was looking at the schools that could do it, and it's a graduate program on top of your bachelor's. Okay. And at the time, the starting salary was $40,000 a year. I'm like, all right, this doesn't work. <laughs> So I was watching an episode of How It's Made in the Discovery Channel. Okay. And they were making an artificial knee. And it goes to basically the foundry, dirty shop, people working through it until it gets all the way up to the clean room environment. And they're sealing the packaging, sterilizing it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that, there's a much bigger market for that. I could still be in bio. So the company's name on the label was Biomet. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar. Well... What I had found out was I had decided to go down that path, took mm-hmm. a bunch of courses, transferred to Kettering myself. And Dane Miller, who the Miller Labs from Kettering are named after, mm-hmm. turns out he was the founder of Biomet. So a How It's Made... Thank you. <laughs> a How It's Made episode talking about his business is what got me to the school to okay. work and study in the labs that he paid for. So, all right, I want to be in medical. But so hard to find a job. Yeah. Automotive is just too easy in Michigan. <laughs> I did not apply for one automotive company. Um, but they reached out to me. And they had gotten my resume from somewhere. I don't know where. And they had offered me a position in research. Okay, it's research. It should apply to a lot of different things. Sure. I won't get pigeonholed in automotive. <laughs> I got pigeonholed in automotive. <laughs> um, and as way leads on the way, I'm very, very happy. Sure. Um, I found out that it didn't matter what I thought I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I'll find enjoyment in whatever I am doing. And I, I kind of go into the weeds and a lot of the little things that I get interested in. But you, <laughs> you were able to actually start off in your education much earlier than I did. Sure, sure. Um, what was your thought process at the time? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I So I think growing up, I always had like a healthy curiosity for how things worked and like taking stuff apart and loved like it was a good day when an appliance uh, met its demise in our house, an old tube TV or something, because that meant I got to take it out to the garage and start ripping it apart. Um, and I And I think I kind of... Uh, I guess math and science were probably areas that were more interesting to me. But, um, and so that kind of gloved, I guess, decently well with thoughts towards engineering in the first place. But I was actually at one point pretty set on going down like an architecture path. Um, And it was kind of maybe fortunate or unfortunate timing. I I don't really know which, uh, but like when I was looking at going to school, Uh, for an undergrad degree and looking at different programs and looking at, you know, future job prospects beyond that. It was like, I graduated in 2009, which was like, you know, great recession sort of timing and like everyone's foreclosing on their houses and not much new constructions happening. And so um, it didn't maybe seem like a super promising time to get into architecture. And I guess a lot of industries were struggling then, but I, I think engineering for me, the engineering part always seemed like it fit with just like my interests and where I kind of excelled academically. Uh, but I guess, interestingly, I was not, I would not describe myself as a car person growing up. Like I was curious about mechanical things and how they worked and, you know, 
levers and gears and pulleys and that kind of stuff. But I, you know, um, was not, was not like a gearhead. I wouldn't describe it that way. And so it was interesting. Like I, it was a pretty seemingly natural progression for me to go into engineering. Um, but once I got to Kettering, uh, I think I, I quickly realized that like I felt, you know, they say you kind of become the people who that who you surround yourself by. Um, and that can be good or that can be bad. But I think in an environment where, especially like you said, in the Metro Detroit area, so much of an automotive presence, you know, Kettering is renowned for it, you know, being a co-op school, right? Where you're getting on the job experience and academic experience at the same time. Um, so many of those partnerships and what people do tend to be automotive suppliers. Interestingly, much like you, uh, so my dad, he has always been in the automotive industry. He actually was a mechanical engineer. My mom was as well. They were both in the automotive industry. I think my dad actually initially tried to steer me away from automotive because he felt like it, it was, uh, you know, certainly it had its advantages and he was grateful to the industry for everything that it had done for our family, but it was just, um, he didn't want me to get pigeonholed into automotive either. And so he like sort of encouraged me to explore other things. I too was going down kind of a biomedical, biomechanical path at one point. Uh, but I guess ironically, just being surrounded by people who were interested in automotive, had car projects, talked about cars, were just curious and those things worked for car companies. I just like started organically to get more interested. And I think at some point was just beginning to feel like, <laughs> I don't know if inadequate's like the right <laughs> word to use, but just like I was, I was like envious of not having enough knowledge about these things that my friends were interested in. And I think the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was um, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, Katie, um, her family had a huge history in automotive um, going back several generations. And they were all into, uh, they owned like a, a, a car dealership and they had um, different automotive projects always going on. And to the extent that they were into racing and Katie, my wife and her brother and her dad and their friends, they, they actually did racing like on the track at uh, Waterford Hills, it's the SCCA stuff. So I was, I was dating my now wife who at the time was my girlfriend and she was a race car driver. And I'm like going out to the track and watching her race around this track and like do all this cool stuff. And I was just like, man, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be seen with Katie and hang with her family and, and kind of embrace this engineering life, I, I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta up my game. I gotta get into this. And so I think it like maybe around my like freshman or sophomore year of college was when I like became interested in cars and automotive. And then like for me taking the plunge was, okay, I'm going to buy a car that doesn't run and try and figure out why it's not running and get it going. And I was like goaded into it by several friends who were like, yeah, you should, oh yeah, you totally. And it, there was a, a Volkswagen Golf TDI, little turbo diesel uh, platform. It was 2000, a silver four-door found it on Craigslist. I would say the ad was a little bit disingenuous in how it made it seem like it was uh, no big deal and it could just be right on the road. Eventually I found out that it was more of a big deal than they pitched it as, but I remember getting a, a short-term loan from my parents to buy a non-running car. And I remember like sitting down with my parents and, and being like, guys, I, I think I want to get this car. I'm going to work on it in the garage. And just like as like I'm a parent now and I think this is something I, I aspire to be, but like, you know, supportive of your kids, even if it's maybe a little crazy, I really had no knowledge or ability or experience or knack for working on stuff, but bless their hearts. They were just like, okay, um, you know, what are your plans? Like, is someone going to help you work on this? And I didn't, uh, you know, I guess I just had bright-eyed, bushy-tailed ambition, and dad had a garage that I could put it in and some tools, and uh, my mom was super supportive, and so they gave me a little loan. Uh, I think I spent $2,500, towed this thing home, got it in the garage, and uh, started trying to figure out what was wrong with it, and that was like the first plunge into really diagnosing an automotive issue and kind of took off from there. I became like really into buying pretty crappy cars that always needed work on them and uh, 
being a, a poor college student, like always finding an excuse to work out and try and save a buck. So it was like, I would say, interestingly, I was like, for most of my life had no interest in automotive until like, I guess about the midpoint, then became very interested in it. And I guess, uh, I guess it's just a testament. If anyone's watching this and is like tangentially interested, but feel like they, they are too far behind or can't get caught up. I was a late bloomer. Uh, and now, you know, automotive has become a pretty big part of my life and part of my career and professional and personal interests. And it, it's interesting. You, uh, if you if you're motivated and interested enough to to pursue some of it, there's so much out there. And I can remember, like automotive forums were just huge for me. I bought this Volkswagen, and Volkswagen people love talking about their cars. I don't know if it's because they are perpetually needing repair or they don't work that well. I've heard Volkswagen turning regular people into mechanics since 1918, uh, and it I guess that sort of proved to be true for me. Like uh, getting that little Golf that had 250,000 miles on it when I bought it. So it was definitely seasoned uh, and needed plenty of work. But yeah, it's just, it's kind of the spark that set it off. And if you're, if you're, if you're willing to jump in and get your hands dirty, I'm, I'm a big believer that there's nothing that you can't learn if you're just willing to put in the time. So yeah, it was a weird, non-traditional, non like from the cradle path, but through friends and eventually the, not, not, implicit but like maybe maybe implied little pressure productive pressure from my girlfriend and her family i think i i wanted to be perceived as cool so it got me interested and then it kind of took on a life of its own so i'd start of course just because i could only afford in the beginning very inexpensive cars mm -hmm. in 2002 was when i bought my first car okay i paid 800 dollars for it my man and Fixed it up a little bit. Drove it all the way to Oklahoma for college and back on an $800 car. Nice. Um, so, of course, becoming mechanically inclined or learning cars was just a necessity for driving yeah, an $800 yeah, yeah. car across country. <laughs> so that car ended up seizing the motor, and then I bought a $300 car. This is about 2005. Okay. And, all right, $300 car. I had to fix that up a little bit and just bought some time until... I could get my first Cadillac. Sure. Um, the first so in a long line of <laughs> prestigious caddies. So More that, to come on that, right? Uh, well, you remember how that car died. I It had a quarter million miles on it as well. Was that the one that gave up the ghost in Florida? Florida? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We were on a uh, spring break trip. Yes. Three yes. guys in my car driving down to Florida, second day, transmission blue. <laughs> uh, got told, <laughs> it was so funny. Um, I asked the guys, do you just want to sleep in the car tonight? Call tow truck in the morning. You want to call tow truck tonight? I'll go ahead and pay for a hotel room. We decided to call the tow truck then. Mm -hmm. The guy shows up, gets out of the truck. Of course, it's all dark. We're underneath a street lamp. His headlights are pointing at us. He starts walking. As he gets closer, notices that he's in a, a tank top t-shirt and the headlights are glistening through his back and shoulder hair as he's walking up. <laughs> goes, hello, Mr. Carl. My name is Constantine. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. So Constantine just rescued me on the side of the road. That's awesome. Um, got towed back into a little town. Uh, he dropped the car off in the street in front of a repair shop. So went to the repair shop the next day, asked him, he goes, it's going to be $1,800 for the repair. Like, okay, cool. Can't do it for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Ideal when you're on a uh, less than one week trip, right? Yeah. So he says, I have to know by one o'clock. So I walked down to a Ford dealership, mm -hmm. bought another car. Um, not the best way to buy a brand new car. Sure. Yeah. They kind of had you in a yep. position of vulnerability there. Drove back to my car, which is still sitting in the street. Got all of our luggage out of it. I threw the keys in the driver's seat and then continued on the vacation. Um, left the car there. They were going to send someone to tow it, clean it up. But that was kind of funny. Anyone who has an, a strong opinion about a car brand, mm -hmm. in my opinion, you think you love such a certain brand. Mm -hmm. Every one of those is basically the same thing as a bad relationship. Now, this is why I say that. I'm, I'm intrigued. I loved that Cadillac. Mm -hmm. But when it finally let me down and I decided that I was going to be going away from it, I could now see all of the things that were wrong with it that my friends or other people would point out. <laughs> <laughs> that I was giving rose-colored glasses of and saying, no, no, that's not a problem, that's not a problem. 
once I'm driving away, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know what? That was costing me a lot of money. Yeah, that red rusted through there, that blah, 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 blah. I don't care what vehicle you have. All of them have problems. And That's true. everyone treats it as, again, a bad relationship. You don't see the things that other people see, and you're going to defend it, defend it until something happens. And then you start to realize where those detractions are. That's fair. Yeah, I, I would say I've had... <laughs> If justifying a car's poor performance uh, is equivalent to a bad relationship, then I've had myriad bad relationships over the years. I think I sat down and tallied it up, and this is going to sound silly or maybe pretentious, but I'll qualify it in a second. I think I've owned something like almost 30 different vehicles, but most of those have been very, very cheap vehicles. Like numerous have costed less than $1,000. Many didn't run either before or after I got them. And I was like, I've traded vehicles. I, I was just interested in trying different stuff out. Um, so, you know, different brands to kind of get some of those experiences. But yeah, I would say um, not everyone has maybe experienced the, the, the phenomenon of being on the side of the road with a car that has let you down. Um, and it is a humbling experience, but I think it, I think it's like a character building experience. You know, I, I I've been in that situation a few times and it's like purely by choice, I guess, because I would choose to take on these projects and do these things and be interested in these quirky cars that were like, you know, I, the only way I could afford it was to get one that was totally whopped out with miles and, you know, on its last leg. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, those of, those are some, some life lessons, some stories I can think of. Like I had a 91 geo tracker where I paid Thirteen hundred dollars for, I you remember this vehicle? That was the one that had the beer tap for the shifter. At some point, the whole thing was painted in Rhino liner. I remember I had a fuel pump that liked to just randomly quit on me and leave me on the side of the road. Fortunately, it was a really light vehicle, so I could individually push it out of traffic pretty reasonably. But that thing stranded me a few times. I know when I was driving that vehicle at one point on um, it was twenty three south. Uh, in the in the nighttime, the hood latch ripped out of the um, like it was rusted on the underside of the hood. So the hood didn't come unlatched. It just the rust got serious enough that the pressure of the wind it ripped off, and the hood flapped up and smacked the window, and then ripped off the vehicle. Uh, like on seventy five, it cracked my windshield, and I had to pull over and go retrieve my hood, and then drive home with the hood strapped to the roof of my car. That was. That was quite an experience. Had the hood just open, Dukes of Hazard style. And uh, my, with the like being stranded thing, I know I had a project car, my, my beloved 87 Volkswagen Vanagon that I painstakingly swapped an engine into um, over like a year and a half. It was always going to be a project car, but at some point I moved from Michigan to Colorado. I've since moved back, but I had made that move. And I needed to get that vehicle, or I wanted to get that vehicle from Michigan to Colorado. And so after we had found a place out there, I decided I was going to fly back and do this, you know, great American road trip, which ironically, I feel like whenever anyone buys like a, like a van life or van camper type thing, like a, like a Vanagon is, or like any VW bus is, you know, that's what you envision yourself doing, driving around, taking these magnificent trips. As it turns out, I spent all this time working on it and really only ever took one meaningful trip in it. Uh, and it was a fun trip, but about halfway on the journey to Colorado in the middle of Iowa in a cornfield in a rainstorm, uh, I had the turbo in the engine just let go. Uh, and I puked out all of the oil in the engine. It was an oil-cooled turbo, the impeller came off its axis and just ran amok and spit all of my oil out the tailpipe. And I can remember sitting there. Um, I loaded it back up with oil, didn't know what went wrong, started it again, all the oil shot right back out. And I was like, this is concerning. And I was like, still had, I was right in the middle of an 18 hour potential trip and uh, had hundreds, if not a thousand miles to go on either end. And I was like really forcing myself to think about like, what do I do with this vehicle? It won't no dealer will look at it. And I tried, I called, no shop would take it because it was an engine swap and they just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so I was literally like, do I just leave it on the side of the road with the keys and just say like, 
free to whoever finds it and then fly home like do i do i light it on fire i don't even know like how do you if i if if an owner wants to just willingly abandon a vehicle what do you do like ha- without incurring costs mm-hmm. so anyways like i was like at the end of my rope and just decided like well i guess i can try and see if i could find a way to fix this thing to keep to finish this trip so it ended up i blew the turbo and i had to swap a turbo but to swap a turbo i had to get a turbo and on a engine that was over 20 years old they didn't make the parts anymore and i could only find a reman one so i ended up staying in a hotel for a night and getting like a turbo the last one i could find overnighted i found a random guy through calling around that was a volkswagen enthusiast who let me use his tools and park it in front of his house but he was like 40 miles away so i had to get i had to use aaa to tow my incapacitated vehicle to the house of a stranger whom I had never met uh, so that I could meet him and hopefully he would honor the promise to let me work on this this car. Um, and yeah, I had to like take the engine out of the mounts and the trans to get to the turbo to get it off and switch it. And so it was like way more involved than I feel like I would ever want to do again laying on my back in the street in a rainstorm. But over the course of a couple of days, got it running again, completed the trip, made it to Mount Rushmore, which was like sort of the pinnacle, I would say, of the journey, and then made it home to Colorado and uh, held on to that vehicle for a couple more years, begrudgingly sold it at some point. Actually, the guy who bought it was an owner of a coffee shop who wanted it for advertising purposes. He bought it. Um and put like stickers decals all over it and it sits out front of his place the company is called i think or the shop or they're called righteous grounds they're in i think woodland park colorado um i've seen it the vehicle's still out there it exists you can find it like on facebook or something but super awesome guy he was really pumped to buy it i was glad it went to a good home and I'd, i it excites me to know that Maybe someday if I get motivated enough to try and reclaim it, he might be willing to sell it back to me. I don't know. But I got out of that relationship, and it was a good one. I liked it. But it did have a ton of problems. You're right. I justified it at the time, but it was a pain in the butt, and it was always falling apart. So, Hey, Scott. Yeah? I know you're excited, but please stop banging on the table. <sighs> you can't put this bird in a cage, Eric. I'm sorry, man. No, truly. It's uh. It's Why, hard. To, I blame Corey for wanting these metal tables. Did he start that? This was, this was his idea. I'm with you. They do look cool. They do. The everyone rivets. smacks them, and then it, all you hear is boom, boom. That's fair. I don't know what to do with my hands anymore. I'm just gonna sorry to put them up here. Continue. I'm glad. So I have learned that with all the cheap cars that I've owned, mm-hmm. I always carry a toe strap in my car <laughs> and a twenty dollar bill because at least three <laughs> times now. I've been either broke down on the side of the road or spun out in the snow. Mm-hmm. And as long as you hook up your own car, you just stand on the side of the road holding the loose toe strap. <laughs> Some guy in a truck is going to stop because yes. he's going to feel this is why he exists. This is this is what we play for. Yeah. And uh, that's a great I've idea. I've been able wow. to get myself rescued for no more than 20 bucks three times yeah. due to that. But in going past that, I mean... Yeah, the junker car is now trying to move into something a little bit nicer. And for me, after graduation, I decided I wanted to get a classic car. Yes, this is... I. So <laughs> I love talking about this topic with you. Uh, Carl, bring us up to speed, man. What was your dream car? What are you working on? I wanted a Buick. Okay. Mid-50s Buick. Okay. Now, this is why. My grandfather worked for Buick City for 40, 44 years. Okay. My great-grandfather worked for Buick City. And I wanted to have some sort of a connection with them. As a matter of fact, I wait, what is Buick City? Buick City was the Buick plant in Flint, Michigan. Okay, it was over three hundred acres. Got at it. At one time, okay, it was so it was such a complex that it was referred to as a city. Yes, I'm with you. Okay, so I wanted to feel that connection to them. As a matter of fact, I think the first car I ever drove was my grandpa's Buick Roadmaster. Okay, it would have been in the early '90s. I think I was twelve. They <laughs> sent me to the store to buy a pack of cheese. <laughs> and I still remember this burgundy Buick Roadmaster. My back could not touch the seat. I'm sitting on the front of this bench seat, driving this thing to the store. And I remember to get a pack of cheese. And I think I we, are, why. we are past the statute of limitations, right? Yeah, so yeah. if they want to come after you now, it's too late. So I wanted a Buick. 
And I couldn't find one, couldn't find one. And then one popped up, but not a Buick, but a Cadillac. Okay. I'm like, well, you know, for me, I prefer luxury cars. Okay. I don't care about your coupe. The coupe was the base model. If you're going to collect an collector vehicle, why would you want the base model? Why would not the high-end version? Okay. Which is why I wanted the Roadmaster. For my Cadillac, it's the Fleetwood. Okay. Series 60 Fleetwood, which was the high-end one. So those are set, so the Cadillac and the Buick would be like same platform, essentially, for no. GM at that point? Okay. Um, it would have been the X-Frame. Okay. For the 60s, at least. Okay. Um, Buick and Cadillac were distinctly different. Okay. I mean, Cadillac kept themselves different from everyone. Uh, yeah. They always wanted their own engines, everything. As a matter of fact, I was getting the rear um, ball joints and uh, bushings, and I had ordered a set and got it, and it was completely wrong. So I contacted the seller. He says, well, I figured that 61 Chevy would be the same as Cadillac. <laughs> no, they're not. Cadillac was unique. So anyway, I'm looking at this listing, and I'm like, <sighs> I'm hem-hawing around. I'm talking to one of my grandmothers, and I said, I just can't afford it. And she looked right at me. And she goes, yes, you can. Like, well, you're right. I can. So I go to look at this car. It's in the basement of a barn okay. in Parma, Michigan. Which not all barns have basements. That this one did, which was kind of funny. So it was a big beams. Uh, this was where the cow troughs and other stuff was. There was actually a tractor on the floor above it, big thick boards. The tractor was leaking oil <laughs> through on top of this car. And the barn, because it was built on that angled hill, was mm -hmm. actually tipping over off okay. the hill. So it had been part of a state. It was originally owned by a couple. They were older when they got it. They died and went to their daughter. Their daughter couldn't sell her parents' car, so she kept it in the barn. Well, she was old too. Okay. She ended up passing away. The estate went into probate, and it sat for years until one of the sons was finally able to liquidate it. So I'm looking at this car. I'm like... Everything was there, but it was rough. Okay. Uh, it had been sitting since 1976. And I'm always curious. So where did, was this a Craigslist ad? Where did you yep. track this down? Yep. Okay. Craigslist. So I said, all right, I'm going to go and buy it. And all the trees had grown up around the door. So we had to go out with chainsaws and actually cut down a bunch of trees to be able to get this car out. Because the barn was tipping over, the door was angled and they had put beams to support the door. <laughs> The vehicle, I think, is 80, 81 inches wide, and it was only one inch narrower than the door opening that was left. Again, this vehicle has no brakes. This is a door opening that is yeah. like a parallelogram <laughs> at this point, yep. right? Because the building's falling over. The building has no brakes and basically flat tires. Oh, I had brought air tanks with me, and I asked the guy if I could air up the tire so I could look under it. He goes, no one's ever asked that before. They held air. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's still sitting on those tires. Amazing, amazing. Um, so I ended up getting out, getting it home, and I was so excited. I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go break the engine free, do a tune-up. I'll start this thing up, and I'm going to ride it like, drive it like it's a rat rod. <laughs> Just rough. I'll keep that. Yeah, yeah I love that. Not aesthetic. a chance. Yeah. That engine was completely seized. Sure. But I didn't know that yet, so I was so excited. Every trip home until I could get that home, I was buying more things for a tune-up. Okay. So I had everything for a tune-up for this car sitting on my shelf. All the spark plugs, wires, oils, blah, blah, blah. Never once used any of it. It sat. So now I'm probably $30,000 into the restoration of this car. Haven't even done paint yet. Um, it's probably going to at least be another twenty twenty five thousand $25,000 until I'm done. When I'm finished, the car will be worth 30000 So everybody always asks me, well, why would you put that money in it? It's not going to be worth it. And this is what I say. You know, some people go skiing. How much money do they get back from that? Not very much, no. it turns out. This is my hobby. This is what I do when I get home. I was sure. sandblasting parts last night. Yeah. And some people say, well, when are you going to get it done? My hobby is restoring a car. Why would I want to finish? <laughs> well, yeah, and for those <laughs> and for those like listening to, and I, I have the benefit of, of having talked with Carl about this before, but I know like you take the restoration effort to a whole new process, like where, where one person might purchase a replacement like new old stock chrome piece or something nay you are actually like doing the plating on some of like your trim pieces and stuff to bring them back to their former glory but like you've created like a plating apparatus in your barn right and you're i i i feel like carl's restoration is 
you're like taking on the the responsibility of the manufacturer of some of these parts is amazing. I was on a Cadillac forum, one of the original ones that I was on. Mm -hmm. And I looked up the statistics before this forum actually went under. Half of all of the information that had been created on the forum was from me and my car. (laughs) I had created all the tutorials. I have a 147 page manual that I made for the brakes. Eric, we got to put a link in (laughs) if that's out there. So yeah, I had gone through and I I still, I love it. So I've helped people all over the world uh, because I have the most detailed teardown. Now here's the thing. I have all these parts torn down, photographed, detailed assembly, Mm -hmm, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. So I have people who contact me and say, hey, what was this part? Or where did this one go? Or how did this go? And I give them information. Mm -hmm. And then they come back and they say, oh, that's great. That fixed the car. It's running great now. I've never driven this car. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. I've never driven a Calasic Cadillac. So someday I will. There is some irony there. But now I did get my Buick. I'm not done with the Cadillac yet. But a 52 Buick Roadmaster came up. Okay. And I decided, all right, I'll just stock that away to pull because the I'll finally do my pick. All right. So now that we're in automotive and we're in basically a renaissance for electric vehicles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and interesting that you call it a renaissance because that is accurate. Most people I don't think realize that. Yeah. So of course I have to think about, well, how do I turn one of these classic cars into an electric vehicle? Mm-hmm. The Cadillac can't be done. Because of the X frame, the X axis is a backbone sits through the center tunnel, and the entire floor of the vehicle is basically the lowest point of the vehicle. Okay. There's nothing underneath it before the ground. So there's no room there. Uh, very sleek, very low vehicle. But the 52 Buick has a lot of dead space. And I thought, I'd have room for batteries. I could get an electric crate motor. I've even thought of some of the vehicles that we tear down here, we have extra parts, and we mm-hmm. sell these parts. Yeah. At least the ones that are still complete. Sure, sure. There's not a lot that we go through that are still complete because we tear yeah. them all completely down. We, we do them. They're usually pretty uh, out of commission by the time we finish one. But. So I thought, all right, the Buick would be a candidate, and mm-hmm. that would be the next one. I probably won't be able to get to it for seven years anyway. Sure. Um, but one of the whole reasons for the Buick mm-hmm. was because I wanted a Fireball straight A engine. Okay. I don't want to lose that engine. Sure, sure. So, so you're going to swap that into a lawnmower. <laughs> And then electrify the Buick. Um, probably not. So okay. I'm thinking okay. now. It's like okay, by the time I finish the Cadillac, I'll get started in Buick. Mm-hmm. By the time I get started in Buick, I got to think of the next vehicle, the next platform that I will turn into an electric vehicle. Yeah. Now I know Ford has made a crate engine available for electric vehicles. Yeah, I've seen. You know, it's funny. I've seen that. Like, I, I think GM has a, a similar version too that apparently has all the parts that you need. I've not known anyone who's actually done one of those conversions, um, but there are other companies too in the aftermarket that have sort of like these crate EV setups. And it's it's interesting to think about, I think it's, you are at a time here where there's like, even a lot of OEMs like are still getting their feet wet in electrification. There's just like a lot of uncertainty. I think batteries weird people out. Um, but I definitely do think like, there will still be hot rodding. There will still be people working on cars and doing car projects that are electrified. Um, oh, sorry. Was I tapping the table? No, that it brings me to a question. Okay. You, you, you like to restore cars. Yeah. In 20 or 30 years, are people going to be able to restore electric cars or is that like gone now? And that also ties into the next topic I want mm-hmm. you guys to get into is like mechanics in the future. Like, sure. With all the electric cars that are promised and coming out, like mm-hmm. what's going to happen to mechanics? So restoring the electric car. Yeah. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are some issues, however. <laughs> so we know that some of the most complex systems, or at least the systems that we comment the most on, mm-hmm. are the drive units, the batteries, and then the cooling system. Thermal management, sure. The cooling system, some of them, they just have... Hoses and hose clamps. Mm-hmm. That's easy to modify. Some of them are more integrated. They have full systems that are molded specific to that vehicle, specific links. Sure. That would be more difficult. But sure. you could probably fit in and replace components on some things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that it will be possible. I think that it will be expensive. But it's expensive restoring a classic car as well. Yeah. 
As a matter of fact, I was thinking about for mechanics. Mm -hmm. People say, well, no one's going to be able to work in a car. I'm like, yes, they will. And they said, well, are we going to put mechanics out of business, all the people that are currently doing all this stuff, and now we're changing electric? No, we're not. And here's an example. You can still go to a mechanic, certain ones, mm -hmm. and get babbitted bearings. Do you know what a babbitted bearing is? I don't even know what a babbitted bearing is, Carl. So basically, think about Model T. Mm -hmm. Those engines, the bearings for the um, pistons and whatnot, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they were actually cast in place. They okay. were not separate off-the-shelf components that were snapped in there. There are still people that cast babbitted bearings. Sure. And I thought it was actually kind of funny. Within the system that we have here at Monroe, within Design Profit, mm -hmm. I was looking through there and I was wanting to see a bunch of the different materials that we have access to. Mm -hmm. Babbitt is one of them. <laughs> so I went to Sandy and I said, why do we still have Babbitt in our Design Profit when, honestly, this has not been used since the 20s or 30s? He goes, don't know. <laughs> so there are still people who will Babbitt bearings. Sure. I just had my transmission rebuilt. My transmission is a Jetaway hydromatic transmission. Only certain people can work on those, and sure. there's several of them. And they've been working on those transmissions since the 60s. Those people are still there. Now, is it a different skill that the people working on current vehicles will have to learn? Yes, but only for certain things. My Cadillacs. Mm -hmm. Honestly, for the Cadillacs that I drive regularly, they have been most, the most unreliable cars that I've owned. <laughs> Just that, like most BMWs or the, Jaguars. Yeah. That Ford that I bought on vacation yeah. was the most reliable car I've yeah. owned. Yeah. I mean, I took it to 200,000 miles before I gave it away. The only thing, I did brakes once, and oil change and tires are the only things that I ever put into that car. Yeah. However, like my Cadillac that I'm driving now, I've done wheel bearings five times. And it's not because of the wheel bearing being bad. Only two sure. wheel bearings went bad. It was because of a flake of a magnet for a sensor that throws off the traction control, the ABS, all of that, yeah. because that magnet breaks off. Well, guess what? A wheel bearing is still on an electric vehicle. People are going to have to do bearings. Mm -hmm. I spent nearly $3,000 on the suspension because it was that magnetic fluid uh, suspension system. Really, really expensive. Mm -hmm. We still have struts. We still have shocks on electric vehicle. There are many things that we are still going to have to pay for. And yes, there are certain things that are going away, mm -hmm. but not all of them. No, yeah. I mean, you, you look at a vehicle and the like the total number of parts and all the systems and like there's still an awful lot of purely mechanical and electromechanical systems on an EV. There's nothing inherent about an EV that makes it such that you couldn't restore it. Um, you know, I think people always like nostalgia or whatever it is that that makes them want to put the effort in to restore something to how it was, you know, at a time in their past that they remember. I mean, I think you like it's true you have a reduction in moving parts and in the powertrain that leads to less maybe few like right there's not explosions going on in these in these pressurized cavities in an EV. So it's it's you know you're the amount of wear and consumption of fluids and stuff on some of these components, like it, it should have longer service intervals that would lead to less service. But I mean, to, to your point, right? There's people are still going to need wheel bearings and brakes. And, and yet people say, I, I hear this a lot and I would just like to clear the air on this brakes. EVs don't need brakes as often <laughs> big qualifier there. The reason people say that you can use regenerative braking, right? Which is your electric motor spinning in reverse, acting as a generator to slow your vehicle down. And if you use regenerative braking, um, then yeah, it's slowing your vehicle down. It's actually helping your efficiency. But I know a lot of people don't like using the regen drive mode. Um, they think it's weird because when they let off the accelerator, they start to slow down and they, and in most vehicles, they have like multiple modes of that, right? Or most EVs, you've probably seen it. Like there's an eco, most aggressive, least aggressive. So I would say like an EV has the potential to go a lot farther with one set of brake pads, but it depends a lot on how you drive the vehicle. Uh, and if you use regen to its full capability, and if you don't, you can burn through brake pads just as easily as anyone. <laughs> So I have an issue with regen on electric vehicle just because of the length of my commute. Yeah. I spend so long on the freeway. Honestly, in my trip to work, I'm only on the accelerator half the time. Mm -hmm. The rest I'm coasting. But I can't coast with an electric vehicle with regen braking. I always have to be engaging that accelerator unless I'm using cruise control. Sure. I hate cruise control. 
just because I like to be in control. Maybe I'm a control freak. Yeah. I'm not sure. Carl control. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I enjoy driving. Sure. I have a long commute. I enjoy driving. I hate the regenerative braking. So I'm not going to get that benefit. Yeah. Um, but I don't have my foot on the accelerator half of my trip. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, yeah, I think about too with people being concerned about mechanics and the skill sets and like what, you know, if they're able to work on them, I would, I would say like an interesting parallel you could think of, like there were probably people that were worried, like when vehicles transition from like having carburetors to having electronic fuel injection, right? The way that you like, oh my gosh, there's a computer controlling how much air and spark uh, are going into and fuel are going into my internal combustion engine to make it run the way we want it to. And at that point, you know, mechanics had to sort of level up their toolbox and their knowledge to get diagnostic, like, you know, OBD2 things that they can plug in and read codes and things. And, but like, I don't know, I, maybe, maybe this is just like a simplified mindset or like a capitalist or free market thing, but it's just like, Hey, if there's demand, it'll happen. Like these cars are still going to need maintenance and people, if there's a need out there for it, they're going to work to develop the skill sets. And yeah, it might change what you need to know a little bit, but at the end of the day, as we said, there's still a ton of mechanical parts in cars. You're still going to have, you know, people are still going to have some fender benders. They're still going to need car repair in that sense, collision repair. There's, you know, fans are going to need replacing and filters and this and that. Like there's, I don't know. I, I don't buy into the paranoia that like mechanics are going away anytime soon. I think that like maybe the, they're getting more complex perhaps, but it, I, some of this is not even tied to just it being an EV. Like if, if you took someone from 1950 uh, who was familiar working on internal combustion engines there and dropped them in the engine bay of a modern internal combustion car they would think they were looking at an alien spaceship and wouldn't even know where to begin, right? So it's it's just some of it is just getting familiar with the technology. I, I don't think it's as scary as people think. And with appropriate some training and some common sense, I think it'll be just fine. So when you say complex, a lot of that is my, not really complexity, but how tight we're packaging everything. That's true, yeah. So it's the difficulty of getting to components. Yeah. My 52 Buick... I mean, I'm a big guy. I know I'm a big guy. Yeah. I can fit in the engine bay with the engine in there and close the hood. <laughs> There's amazing. plenty of room. I can take any component individually off of that vehicle without having to tear a bunch of other stuff apart. Yeah. Cadillac, not as much, but the Buick, I could. Yeah. So we went from that, the excess, the dead space, yeah. to how those things are packed so tightly together. We tear down vehicles. We tear down a lot of vehicles. And sometimes we give ourselves a plan. We say, like, I want to remove this this day, this this day, this this day. And then you look at it and you say, um, I'm going to have to reorganize this because I can't take this out until this happens or this yeah. happens or this happens. Yeah. Um, so when we disassemble a vehicle, we don't have the burden of putting it back together. That is true. That is a um, <laughs> but huge advantage that we have. I don't think too many people have actually disassembled an electric vehicle to the point that we have. Sure, sure. I'm literally, I'm every nut and bolt off, all the components off. Yeah. We've torn everything apart. Nor would you ever need to no. under any sort of normal circumstances, no. right? But yeah, I mean, I, it, yeah, I, I do think, and this goes not just for EVs, but just for vehicles in general, right? Software and the software defined vehicle is something that more and more companies are embracing, right? Tesla is one of the first companies to really kind of go all in on that strategy. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, autonomy is an equally sort of important thing that is happening in automotive right now. I think about that as being interesting from the standpoint that, you know, in the state of Michigan, and I love Michigan, I was born here, raised here, left here, came back here because I, because I dig it. But we are uh, extremely lax on what we'll allow on the road, right? There are so many cars that probably arguably are not street worthy or road worthy or safe that are just buzzing around. It's normal to see car parts littering the sides of the road. You can have as much rust as you want, whatever. It's just like, will it run? You could make, you could literally make a car out of wood, I think, and like register it in Michigan and they wouldn't, there's no inspections. It's just like, whatever, totally hands off. I do think that as we get more and more level, like as, and hopefully the legislation catches up, right? But once we get 
like into that L3 or L4 territory for ADAS. Now, like for the vehicle to be safe, it's relying a lot of cameras and sensors and things that like, if I have cameras in my fascia, I can't be driving around with no bumper on, right? Or I can't have these things be misaligned. And so I think that we may get to a point where I think potentially more disruptive for repair. Well, but maybe that's the new type of mechanic stuff. Like it's like we have these really complex uh, vision systems and systems of sensors that make the vehicles more safe so they can drive themselves. And maybe that's where all the displaced mechanics who used to wrench on engines, maybe they're now experts when it comes to positioning and calibrating cameras and stuff for to keep vehicles safe in that way. So there's still, if anything, I think there's there's more, we're asking more and more of our vehicles and, and there's plenty of uh, uh, challenging things that these vehicles are doing. There's going to need to be people to support them. And so I think, yeah, I, I'm optimistic about the future of uh, the, <laughs> the industry and what people will need to do on them. And further, I think there's this whole topic of like, right, if we take autonomy and we, if we assume that we can get to a point where a car can drive itself, you think about what potential that opens up in terms of, you know, our, even so your vehicle that your daily driver, your Cadillac, what, do you, how, what percentage of the time do you think you use that vehicle? How often is it stationary versus in motion? I do two and a half to three hours per driving per day. Okay. Yeah, so you're, so maybe, yeah, 10% of the time it's being driven. And that's more than most, I would say. Yeah. And so even in an optimistic case, that's 90% unutilized. If you have a car that can drive itself and you sort of take it the next logical step to say, we have Uber, uh, but with no Uber drivers, right? I can dial up an app and the, uh, the car will go to where it needs to go, pick someone up, do what it needs to do. You think about people maybe not purchasing as many cars, vehicles being used more as like a service or a subscription or whatever. Um, the utilization of vehicles now goes up hugely, right? They can be driving 80% of the day maybe. And it, when that's happening, then you'll have, you know, those wear items, the brake pads, the wheel bearings, the seals, the gaskets, the whatever, which all still exist in an EV. Those are going to be getting consumed at a faster rate and will need repaired, you know, more frequently. So, so any, if anything, I think that I could see a future world where, with autonomy, maybe there are fewer, well, yeah, fewer people are actually owning vehicles, but the vehicles are being consumed at a faster rate such that they're needing to be maintained at a more regular interval. Maybe it'll offset. So you said optimism a little yes. bit ago. You said you're optimistic for the future. Yeah, What things course. are going to be available. So uh, just an interesting side note, going back to the classic vehicles. Okay. Because I've been involved in these groups, most of these guys are in their 70s. They want a 50s, 60 vehicle just because they remember it when they were kids. They sure. feel this nostalgia. So nostalgia. There's a couple of different references to that. Some people say nostalgia is the enemy of progress or nostalgia is the enemy of optimism. Okay. You can't be optimistic for the future if you always think that the best days are in the past. That's fair. So these guys, when we're talking, some of them really hate ethanol and fuel. Okay. Oh, we need to go back. This ethanol is just terrible. I'm like, okay, so you want to go back to ethanol fuel. I know a few of them who hate the fact that we no longer have leaded fuel. And, oh, man, they, they need to have the substitute. They want the leaded fuel. The engines ran so much better. They didn't <laughs> knock so much more. Uh, air conditioning, R12 Freon. Oh, that was the coldest AC I ever had. The new stuff is terrible, blah, blah, blah. So I think it is interesting in the fact that R12 Freon, Leaded gasoline, who helped invent those? Charles Kettering. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, there's a quote from Kettering that I actually have that I use a lot. Mm -hmm. It's, my thoughts are on the future because that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. <laughs> so Profound. he's showing optimism for the future. Mm -hmm. But yet two of the things that he invented, which we consider hazardous today, terrible products today, we're getting rid of them today. I believe he would have been all for getting rid of those mm -hmm. and changing to something new, progressing forward. But yet I still have those old guys in these classic car groups that, oh, I miss that. I miss that R12 Freon. I miss that leaded gasoline. I think that's kind of interesting. I am yeah. optimistic. Yeah. I enjoy the classic cars just because 
I like the challenge. Yes, I like looking at them. That's nice. I don't think that they're great cars. Objectively, classic cars are worse by every single metric than vehicles today. (laughs) Other than design, which is purely a subjective (laughs) measure anyway. The steel. I have all these guys say, oh, those big, thick bodies. No, that was great steel. No, it wasn't. It was horribly ductile. If I can take a little tiny hammer and I can shape and bend that steel, yes, it's thick, but it's poor quality. The steel that we have on cars today are much better. And I cannot sit there and hammer and shape it because it's not going to form that way, but it's much thinner. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to me how we have really advanced, but people don't recognize it as an advancement. Yeah. So I'm going to chime in here for a minute. Yeah. I pulled up uh, an article on Clean Tecca from April 4th, mm-hmm. and it's, Will the Retrofit EV Conversion Industry All End in Tears? I haven't read the whole thing, but they're basically talking about, like, rules and regulations that could come down, um, especially with, like, the batteries and how much voltage you can have, et cetera. <laughs> so is that, like, a concern? And right now, is it regulated? Like, how much, if you wanted to convert your own car to an EV? Like, Yeah, so, I mean, my understanding, it may be different in different states, but, I mean, you, I've watched many videos of people doing builds where they take a car that started out as an internal combustion car and they do an EV swap. Usually it involves building your own battery enclosure where you're taking the cells or the cell modules out of a battery pack from usually a Tesla, uh, but from other vehicles as well. Seems like most people like the Tesla swaps. Um, you know, they, but the, I, I guess the thing is it from, from my perspective, it's, it's not regulated, right? But it, but people that engage in it, like an EV swap, if you're putting a battery, there's a reason why OEMs and like clients of ours and suppliers put a ton of emphasis on the safety and design and development and validation of, of a battery pack that's going to perform the way you want it to and be safe in adverse scenarios. Anyone who's sort of hot rodding an EV and building their own battery pack, uh, you, you might get it to run, but like you're sort of having to take a giant risk on the safety and the thermal Yeah, it's basically what the article is talking about, and it's uh, referencing the UK. Okay. So referencing UK, referencing a lot of um, those types of standards. In the US, our standards are FMVSS. Now, FMVSS standards are basically only for the OEMs, Mm -hmm. and they change depending on the number of vehicles that you build per year. Mm, Yeah. Sure. So if you're a low-volume builder, there are things that are allowed, which would not be allowed for a high-volume builder. The home builder in the U.S., FMVSS standards do not reply no. to them. But on a lot of classic vehicles, I know some people that I've helped some people in New Zealand and some other countries with their classic cars. Everything has to be basically stock in order for them to get them registered. Hmm. So I knew some that even things that we would assume that you're changing for safety, like if I had a... Classic car that had a single zone brake okay. brake system, and they want to go to a dual zone. Well, the dual zone did not originally come in the vehicle. They will not pass it. Interesting. Which is, I thought it was too. Um, so I've talked to them about a lot of people that want to take a carbureted engine. They want to change it to fuel injection. Well, that change almost makes them no longer applicable. Yeah. So in the U.S., we have FMBSS. In Europe, they have the ECE standards. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know the intricacies about EC standards for low-volume builds. Um, I know EC standards for interiors, of course. And there yeah. are differences between ECE and FMBSS on what will and will not be allowed for certain fine details. Um, so I'm... I would say that if I was trying to convert a classic car or rebuild a car that had a gas engine changing to electric, mm-hmm. I can see some of those countries that have strict rules yeah. would not allow that. But in the U.S. and especially here in Michigan, yeah, uh, <laughs> that doesn't matter. I, and I feel like it's such a small percentage of the population that has any inclination to even want to do this. But I, but yeah, I mean, I've I don't think in the U.S. that will be a barrier. Um, it, again, much like we're saying, working on it, it requires different skill sets. Like you need to be aware of all the different high voltage monuments and what needs to be there. But much like how I got into cars in the first place, there are the pioneers on the forums who've done it. And uh, it, I mean, I've 
I've seen plenty of people. I know actually Rich, Rich, Rich Rebuilds had like a really good kind of high level summary of, hey, you want to do an EV swap? Here's what you'll need. Here's about what it'll cost. I think it's got a video out there and shout out to Rich, friend of the channel. Yeah, yeah. Got to get him on the pod. Rich, they he had the I think Sandy saw this car in person, Corey did as well. One of the most interesting like anti-EV swap. Not that he's anti-EV right at all, but he V8 swapped a Tesla, which is just makes any makes me smile for sure. Just just because you can or he could. But that was I mean, if you if you look into that, like he ended up having to basically re, I would say re-engineer, maybe loosely, like refabricate the body in white to accommodate uh, a tunnel and stuff that was absent on the car. So I don't know. Hot rodding is always brought with it, I think, an element of uh, uncertainty and danger. I don't know, excitement, whatever. It's it's no one builds a hot rod for it to be like. I don't think practical. super practical or reliable. <laughs> They're always kind of like a, a rolling ball of chaos. So people will do it. I'm not worried about that. All right. We are at an hour. So let's wrap it up. What Before would you like to close with? Do you have a topic? Uh, well, the topic is all these cars you worked on. What has been your favorite and what has been the most challenging for like personal car projects? Personal car projects. You have me beat on volume. <laughs> I might have you beat on in-depthness. Sure. Yeah. Oh, un- unquestionably. I would say, well, just to throw in a different one, maybe a fun one that you, you're aware of. I I had a, this, this is just going to be a random car project. I don't know that it was maybe the most challenging, but it was, <laughs> I one time bought a giant cargo van for $424. 424 instead of 425 because that when I went to buy it, it was I had to count out quarters. <laughs> I had undercalculate or I somehow didn't have enough money and I had to go in the cup holder and get out. And it I was counting up the last bit in coins and the guy was just like, "You can just take the car." <laughs> and it was uh, so yeah, like 424 dollars. It had a spark plug blown out of the head, barely ran. Got it, got it running, and we decided to for like a recruitment event for our fraternity, basically do like a pimp my van type style thing where we we just did all these ridiculous modifications to it, inclusive of painting it like a giant blue bowl and putting an observation dome through the roof and building a wooden spoiler, installing makeshift furniture on the inside, putting in laser lights, some sort of leopard print theme, uh, it was wild. None of it was <laughs> the long a good idea. On it. Oh my gosh, man. But it was, uh, yeah, that, that was fun. I would say that the, the amount of smiles per mile generated from that vehicle were un, unrivaled in anything else I've ever had. Smiles per mile. I like that. That's coin. To, I did not come up with that, but it's, <laughs> you would stop at the gas station and people would like, want to take pictures with it that's when you know you've you've accomplished something either ridiculous or cool i'll try and get you a picture of that eric because it it was fully ridiculous that vehicle i sometimes wonder did you look have up to at get the rid of it see does it exist somewhere out there i did have to get rid of it because, because it was too ridiculous yes it was too noticeable yeah <laughs> essentially extenuating circumstances led to a scenario where the fact that it was recognizable was going to be problematic. So uh, I had to send it on down the road to someone else. And I hope, I, hopefully they didn't get into trouble because they had that noticeable vehicle. But I can guarantee there is no other vehicle that looks just like that one out there in the world. That was an interesting. I still one. remember that. You got it. What did it say? It was a white van said industrial equipment on the side of it. Yes, very then generic Then you painted name. flames on it first. Yep. It had a nice flame paint job originally, and then eventually it became... A giant blue bull or ox. It was, yeah, it was wild. We had a ring on the front end, the bull horns, the observation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was it? A, a two by ten spoiler on it? Yes, yes. <laughs> Rough cut lumber makes for great aerodynamics, especially when through bolted through the hood of a a vehicle the shape of a toaster. It was, uh, it was excellent. And all those through the roof modifications led to a lot of leaks and a lot of silicone. It was, yeah, again, that's what, that was what made me believe that in Michigan, 
You if you can dream anything. it, you can do it. There's really no limitation to what you can have on the road. It's, it's an amazing, it's amazing wonderland. <laughs> well, I don't know if we talked about anything important, um, I'm, but I think I'm this nearly has been a lot positive of fun. that we didn't. But I have enjoyed it as well, <laughs> Carl. Um, so this has been the Monroe Live podcast. Um, I know that we're going to have more conversations with more people, more of the different groups within Monroe going forward. Mm -hmm. yep. Get to know all the engineers that you see on the Monroe Live channel. Mm -hmm. And I think we probably all have crazy stories and crazy backgrounds. So you can go ahead and pick out which ones you think uh, are the best or the worst, depending yeah. on which one you value more. Sure. Uh, if you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe to the Monroe Live podcast and Look forward to the future episodes. Yeah. Thanks for having us on here, Eric. Thanks for setting this up. Again, now I can say I've been on a podcast, and it's, uh, Carl, it's been a pleasure. Yes, sir. All right, man. All right. Thank you for listening to the Monroe Live podcast. If you liked today's episode, please make sure to rate and review us. Thanks to this week's host, Carl and Scott, and to producer Eric, me, Follow us on Twitter Shameless at plug. Monroe Live underscore pod and view episodes by subscribing to our YouTube channel, Monroe Live Podcast. Thanks and see you next time.